0: Hello, welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. We are sitting in Jena, where there has just been an ongoing conference, the Deutsche Orientalisten Tag. And I'm speaking with one of the participants at this conference. His name is Konrad Hirschler. He's professor of Middle Eastern History at Freie Universität in Berlin. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: And today what we're going to be speaking about is pre-Ottoman book culture. Often on the podcast, we've had quite a few people speak about print in 19th century Egypt, about various other aspects of manuscripts, but we often forget about the kind of very vivid and flourishing book culture that obviously existed in the medieval Islamic period. And we're going to specifically focus on Egypt and the Levant, uh, questions about libraries. Our guest is kind of the perfect person to talk about this because he's written multiple books about the written word, about book culture. And his latest book was called Medieval Damascus, Plurality and Diversity, in a medieval library. Conrad, let me start with this question. I think one of the things that we often learn about maybe in the kind of basic Islamic history classes is that medieval Islamic culture was a culture of the book. There's often these stories about medieval royal libraries having hundreds of thousands or thousands of books. How do we find out that the history of the books themselves, how do we get beyond these kind of tropes of kind of a very learned culture and kind of jump into this material book culture.
1: Yeah, that the medieval um, Arabic societies and just taking the example of Egypt and Levant were highly literate is certainly beyond question and I think at least it's fair to say that they were distinctively more literate than for example uh, most societies in Latin Europe during these um, periods but also compared to most other world cultures. And the problem is that we have really um, we hit a dead end some point in the 1980s, 90s because we always relied on reports in chronicles, on biographic dictionaries, or on other literary sources about books and about mm-hmm. book collections, and we have these really fancy description of the caliphate, library in Egypt holding more than one million volumes and alone the book by tabari supposedly was held in several thousand copies. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's only so much you can do with these reports. The challenge which we faced is was basically to find a different way of how to look at the history of books. And what I did in my last book was to take the by then, virtually only medieval library catalogue which we had in order to understand what was actually sitting on the shelves of a library. Hmm. We know that there were in cities like Baghdad and then later on in Damascus in the 13th century and then Egypt, 13th, 14th century um, onwards, that there were literally hundreds of small-scale libraries in these cities. But we didn't really know what was on their shelves. Mm. I mean, what were the people reading who were working in these madrasas, who were sitting in these madrasas, who were attending them on a daily basis? And we had a lot of assumptions on these um, bookshelves and what they were containing, most specifically that this was mostly religious literature, um, right. Islamic law, mm-hmm. like fic And this library catalogue, which today um, is housed in Istanbul in the Suleimaniya library was the catalogue of a small uh, madrasa in Damascus, which was founded in the course of the 13th century. And that was really a new, unique chance to understand the book culture during that period beyond mm. what we have in the literary sources. The most surprising element of that catalogue was really that it contained an enormous range of different books, and hence I called my book Diversity and Plurality and Medieval Damascus because Islamic law takes a backseat in the 5% um, really? well, um, figure.
0: So what, what is it that they were actually reading then? The
1: most prominent field of knowledge of literary, literary activity which was represented was basically adab and poetry, mm-hmm. um, i.e. books which contain a whole range of different topics and anecdotes, but which cannot be easily classified as religious literature in in any way. And that was something which we hadn't really been aware of, that Mm -hmm. people who were sitting in Madrasas had such a strong interest in poetry and in adab. And once we take these books out and look at the different fields of knowledge which are still there, we see quite an even distribution among Islamic law, Quran interpretation, mathematics, philosophy, so the whole range of scholarly activities were represented in that matrasa. So this catalogue was was, was really a unique chance for the first time to see the bookish culture um, of an urban society in the 13th century Mm -hmm. through the microscope, so to say. And the biggest difference which we have if we look at medieval history compared, if we go back to Latin Europe which right. was a distinctively less bookish culture. For Latin Europe, we have virtually hundreds of medieval library catalogs. Hmm. That means, even though there were very few books, our colleagues working on Latin, medieval Latin Europe are able to give us a much better picture of what was going on in a specific monastery, in a specific cathedral, um, or when after the universities had been founded, what was actually on the shelves of universities. That had always buggered me that basically they have very, comparatively few books (laughs) in these societies circulating, um, but that we have these wonderful editions and discussions of medieval libraries in Winchester, uh, in Cambridge, in the various places um, all across Latin Europe.
0: So it's often not a good starting place to ask a question of why why is the Middle East lacking these sorts of documentation, like library catalogs? But I mean, it is a question that's on our minds. You know, Why is it that these texts don't necessarily survive except for this one case of the Ashrafia Library?
1: To be honest, I'm not really convinced that they haven't survived. Um, I think the main problem is that we haven't really looked for this right. material yet. And this catalog was first mentioned in a syrian training manual for librarians trained in the 1970s written by Munajid, a medievalist who then also wrote a book for training archivists and librarians in syria and he had to cr- come across this catalog in the sulemania and put a footnote in that most bloomly the first yeah. known library record and um, library catalog is there and since then it was never picked up mm. it just nobody really picked it up so when i saw this um, reference and followed up, and I understood the potential um, of that. The basic question is not so much why has the material not survived, but much more why have we not really picked up um, what is there. And the catalog has survived in a very weird way. It's bound into a manuscript with many different other texts. It's somewhere in folio 273. Um, In the modern Catalog of the Süleymaniye library. It does not have a title, so it's mm-hmm. impossible to retrieve. And there's a really high chance that other library catalogs are still around, um, but that they have just not survived in a way which is easily accessible for us right. as historians.
0: I mean, that's been my experience too. I also collect, you know, book catalogs from these different libraries in the Ottoman period, and I've found all sorts of things from the 15th to the 19th century. I mean, they're just not very well documented.
1: Yeah. So, so basically the, the say the survival context is mm-hmm. a distinct problem in our field that we don't that we can't go to archive where we would expect these to be and that we have a hunch where we would look at but that will really be by chance that we will come across more Precisely, library catalogs yeah. in the future and the other problem is that we haven't as a field we haven't really picked up what we have so on Arabic uh, manuscripts we have enormous amount of notes which document the use of these manuscripts by readers, by owners, mm-hmm. endowments, etc. And that's quite unique for a medieval book culture that we have this vast amount of notes and we haven't even started to unpick this material in any serious way. We have some small projects which have been started over the last years. For example, in Berlin Library, they've started to catalog these manuscript notes in a systematic way and to put them online so that you're able to work with them mm. um, but that's really a drop in the ocean of what needs to be done so that we can activate the sources which are there it's not the absence of of documentary material which is the problem the problem is that we haven't really picked it up yet
0: Yeah. Mm. So let's get back to this library uh, sitting in 13th century Damascus, the Ashrafia Library. Hmm. She said it was a relatively small library attached to a, a mosque, uh, a madrasa rather. What was its role? You know, Was it just for the madrasa students? Was it open to the public? What can we tell about the role of libraries in... Ayyubid or Mamluk society.
1: Yeah. It was a really small um, Madrasa next to the Umayyad mosque, to the north of the Umayyad mosque. And so fairly typical, I would say, in contrast to the heavyweights um, in Damascus, the really pres- prestigious institutions. Um, and that's also why I think this library catalog is really beautiful, um, because it's not a, f- not a library catalog of one of these big institutions these libraries um, were a new development from the 12th century onwards that you have a much larger amount of these small-scale libraries scattered across the urban topography in small-scale institutions Mm -hmm. and they served in the first place obviously those who attended the madrasas so the teaching activities which were going on there um, were catered by um, with this library But the teaching activities themselves were obviously not limited to a very small strata of societies, but these were often quite open teaching sessions and overlapping or moving into ritual practices where also the larger public Mm -hmm. could attend. And the library was, the room at least, was thus frequented by a considerably large proportion of the urban population, whether they took out books or not is obviously another question, but at least they they were in these rooms. Hmm. Um, They were not closed off these rooms. They were not hidden away Um, or the general populace was not kept away from
0: them. And were these libraries just a room as part of a madrasa? Like, were they separate buildings? Um, or I mean, they kind of books around the mosque?
1: Uh, the main problem is that we haven't really started looking yet at the architecture of madrasas and identified library rooms. Mm. Um, so I think there will be work to be done. Um, but it seems that there were not distinct library rooms in madrasas, but that the shelves were in the main teaching rooms um, cro- uh, along the walls. Obviously, you needed certain um, conditions, so you needed sufficient light, for example. In right. library room, normally these days, we can identify the place where the books would have been kept in the madrasa by the windows, mm. if they are still original. Because that was rule number one, you don't want artificial light in a library. You don't mm. want candles, you don't want no lamps. Fire, no because fires, there yeah. had been enough fires, and there were, uh, there were enough fires, and these people were aware that artificial light is not a good idea to have in a library. So normally they were kept as a compact collection, so they were not scattered across Mm -hmm. the madrasas, but they were kept in the main teaching room as far as possible.
0: So Uh, it was a big enough space for community members to come in and participate in various ritual activities in the library.
1: Yeah. So for example, I mean this Ashrafia um, madrasa, of which um, I did the catalog, um, That is a room which is fairly open. It had very large doors, which were presumably open most of the day, just next to the Umayyad mosque. And so you had a lot of people passing Mm -hmm. by. And it was just the first room where you entered and where the teaching would have taken place and where the praying would have taken place and where you would have had ritual Hadith transmission sessions. That's also where the books were kept, so they were clearly visible for the even for the people in the street um, and for anybody who entered the madrasa, that would be one of the first things they would have um, encountered. And I mean, especially in the Mamluk period where you had, uh, where madrasas were always or very often founded together with children's schools, um, mm-hmm. where um, childrens or orphans um, were taught. These madrasas were often specifically on street corners and they p- were positioned in a way to be seen and to be part of the urban fabric, to be part of daily life of the people. And the role of the library, but also went beyond that. So it's not only that they were fairly open to people attending the buildings and entering um, the buildings themselves, but in most cases books could be taken out. Mm. Um, So if we look at what was on the shelf of a library, it's not only the question who were the people who attended this madrasa on a regular basis, but you had a fairly high chance that somebody who was wealthy enough to leave money, to leave a deposit of some kind, and that's what you needed to do normally if you took out a book, um, that they could walk in and take out books. And if you look then at the range of books which were there, with mathematics and engineering, Mm -hmm. even on trade, um, or poetry, literature, etc., it's quite evident that these bookshelves were not catering for madrasa teaching in a narrow sense, Mm -hmm. um, but that they were catering for the reading tastes and for the reading interests of a much wider section of the population. And that's a dramatic change which is taking place in the 12th and 13th century, that you suddenly have these vast-scale book collections moving into the urban fabric, Mm -hmm. being scattered over the um, urban topography and being suddenly accessible to uh, the urban population.
0: On that note, I mean, it's an interesting question. Where did all these books come from? they just given by the endower? How did these collections come to be?
1: Mm. I mean, in... Most cases, we have a fairly small initial endowment with the matrasah, which is kind of the core of the matrasa, um library. But the these are, let's say, in the dozens of books, and they are a fairly predictable diet of books. And so they are really Islamic law, they are Quran interpretation, they are Hadith. There's nothing too surprising about that. But then in the subsequent decades, you would have people in the vicinity of the madrasas starting to endow their own book collection to these madrasas, And with these supplementary book endowments, these libraries started to grow. And they started to grow probably in quite unpredictable ways, because they could not really control what came in, or at least they were not interested seemingly in controlling it. Um, and that's why you have this wide range of subjects on mm. the field. And in the case of this specific example of this Ashrafia madrasa, mm-hmm. it's evident that the one part of the book collection came from the ruler of the city, one of those many Ayyubid small-scale princes uh-huh. who were ruling small territories. And he probably endowed the books which he had kept in the palace or in the citadel of Damascus to this madrasa. So that's a fairly untypical Madrasa library, so to say, because it was basically a court library, which was transferred into a madrasa, and the second um, part of this library came from a scholar, but from a scholar who had his origins in Egypt and who had whose family had been very instrumental in dismantling the Fatimid court library. So a large number of these books go probably back to the Fatimid court library, and then again were converted into a madrasa library, and that's only. In this case we were able to track down basically where exactly the books come from and what its origins are but i guess it's a fairly good case study to show that madrasa libraries could have a very diverse and not really expected origins because you would not necessarily expect two different court libraries being converted into and merged into a madrasa library
0: fascinating Hello, welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm speaking with Conrad Hirschler. We are speaking about pre Ottoman book culture, the book culture of the Mamluk Kingdom and Ayyubid Levant in Egypt. Again, we're speaking from Yena. Uh, we're, we're in the middle of a conference. And uh, yesterday, Conrad, you were s- presenting some of your latest research, which is also about the book collections of this area and how they get transferred to madrasas, And you were speaking about the Amaria madrasa, I believe.
1: Yeah. Um, is this the same story? At least when I started the project, I believed it would be a very similar story, because this is another book list, um, which is coming from Damascus. Mm-hmm. So when I started, I thought that would be pretty predictable where the thing is going and um, slightly different material, but similar argument. But um, now we move basically 200 years ahead, we are in the late 15th century just on the verge um, of the Ottoman period in Damascus and we move away from the Umayyad mosque, we move outside the old city walls and we move up to the Salahia mountain which is to the northwest of the city of Damascus where the Hanbali community has its center. And one of the Sanbali scholars, called Ibn Abdelhadi, he wrote a list of his books which he endowed to his family, as he says in his list, but which ended up in a madrasa once again. And that's why I thought it's a um, fairly similar story, even if it takes place in different part of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it turns out, this is a very different story because this is a very personal collection by a scholar who had assembled over the course of the previous 30 years uh, a large-scale collection of roughly 700 books Mm -hmm. um, with many more titles because many of these books were uh, multi-text books where we have uh, many texts. And he was giving these books to the Amariya Madrasa, which was the most important uh, madrasa in this part of the city. So again, very different story from the Ashrafia down there at the Meyad Mosque, which was a small scale. Now we are really at one of the heavyweights of intellectual life in Mm -hmm. medieval Damascus. And what's very peculiar about this book collection is that he gave it away during his lifetime. um, And that he basically from his books, which is not normally done. Normally, scholars endowed the books in their last will um, so that after the death they would be transferred. And what transpires from this book collection is that he had a very distinctive way of, let's say, saying farewell to his book collection. And that is he sat down with his family, with his children, his sons and his girls, and also with his concubines. Um, He had at least five concubines, Bulbul and Chauhara and Helwe, um, and he read with them the text, and whenever he finished a reading, he put a note on the manuscript that today, on Thursday the 13th of the month of Ramadan of the year 897 in the afternoon we read this books and presents where Abdullah Abdelhadi, Bulbul, Jauhara and Ahmed came late but he attended some of the reading this is Ibn Abdelhadi and that's virtually on all of the manuscripts which huh. are there so this Scholar virtually had a binge-reading session with his family for roughly eight months, where they were sitting down and reading up to ten texts a day, and always recording it on his manuscripts. And once that was finished, he basically handed over the manuscripts to the Amariya Madrasa. And that was partly certainly done in order to transmit the right of teaching these books to his family. If you record... A reading, and you name the attendance of this reading session, those who participated basically have the right to teach this book to the next generation. It's kind of a small university I degree, see. which you get because obviously there was right. nothing like a big university degree, so you assembled in the course of your life as many teaching permissions you could got your get your hands on. And so he gave his family roughly 2,000 teaching permissions for different texts.
0: But do you think that they really actually sat down and listened to them? Or was this a sort of pro forma, you know, you quickly read through it, you say, okay, we read through that one, let's put it down. Do you actually think that they went through all 700 books and could teach them? I mean, it's kind of a bizarre Mm. thing. Why give a concubine the permission to teach her the books that you own? Yeah, so I think
1: there are two issues. I mean, on the one hand is why do you give your concubine the permission to teach a book who most certainly will not... Embark right. upon a scholarly career. And that's why I think it was very much an emotional act, a symbolic act of this family basically saying farewell to these books and inscribing themselves on these books. On the other hand, um, I'm pretty sure that he read these texts. He might have been a very quick reader. And I'm pretty sure there were no discussions afterwards or explanations or slow reading or stopping and what's going on here and and questions, etc. I'm pretty sure it was a straightforward reading and Abdel Hadi might have been a very quick reader. But he's very careful in the notes which he puts on these manuscripts to note if somebody did not attend the whole reading. So if somebody came only after 50%, um, he always says he only read some of it if he attended somewhere between 50 and 100%, but not the full 100%, he says he reads most of it. And even at one point, a new son is born, Ahmed, um, who joins the family reading sessions um, in the sixth month. And he always puts down, and his age is one day, his age is two days, and in one um, of the notes he puts, and it's his third day, and in this session he was sleeping. (laughs) I'm not really sure whether poor Ahmed was always awake in all the other sessions, but at least it's clear that he had very, very big interest in making sure that these manuscripts reflect to some extent what was going on in the living room or in the garden um, of that family.
0: I see. Because I mean, when I first hear it, it sounds to me like these sorts of ijazas, these transmission certificates in which, you know, someone transmits 300 books to someone over the course of an afternoon. I give you permission to teach everything that I've ever written and everything that I've ever read. Mm. And they meet for 30 minutes or something like that. And then obviously, you know, there's something else going on there. Then the listening session, the audition...
1: Yeah, yeah. and certainly, I mean, by the 15th century, that was fairly widespread, depending on the field of knowledge, Um, but at least in the field of hadith, and most of these books are hadith collections, um, it was fairly usual that you could transmit the right of teaching books by general permission, which you write and then hand over to a student or to a colleague. But in his, his case, he wrote it on every single text. Mm-hmm. Um, so I believe that was really something which took place and which was very, very important for this family to do. And the the beauty, one must say, of this um, book list is that most of the manuscripts have survived to the present. And that's obviously why we are able to see these notes on the manuscripts. So that's a very different case from the Ashrafia library where we have very few manuscripts which are extant today, which we can confidently ascribe to that library. And so we have relatively limited usage knowledge mm-hmm. of what was going on. For the book list from the late 15th century, the Ibn al Hadi book list, on the contrary, I've identified so far some 60% of the texts which are in this Vecherist. And thus, it's possible to write a quite different story Hmm. of how a book collection is going into a Madrasa library, what it means for the book owners and for the book owner. And what it also signified at this specific biographical point of an individual to give away his books. Because after he gave away his books, he basically stopped being active in these fields of knowledge. Hadith Hmm. scholarship, which was what he had done his life. Um, And he turned to medicine, to prophetic medicine. And he spent the rest of his life, which is another 10 years or so, dealing with these fields of knowledge. So it's a very important biographical turning point, which we see reflected in this book list.
0: Are most most of these books are still in Damascus today?
1: Yeah. Most of the books actually survived in the Omaria Madrasa, which is one of the f- very few medieval libraries which continued to exist throughout the Ottoman period. Most of the medieval um, libraries of Damascus were dissolved at some point and were reconfigured into new libraries, which are then Ottoman um, libraries. And that's obviously a entirely different task for us to reconstitute where these Ottoman libraries sourced their books from. But in case of the Omaria Madrasa, in the case of the Ibn Abd al-Hadi um, collection, they have stayed in the Omaria Madrasa until the late 19th century, when the Ottomans founded what they called the public library in Damascus, which was meant to be the central depository of manuscripts, which was accompanied by a process of delegitimizing the old institution and saying they're not able to look after the books, they're lazy Mm. and the librarians never turn up and they're not looking after the building so we really need to do something about it. And they dissolved all these endowments and centralized these books in the Ottoman public library and the Omaria was one of the first to be transferred into this new library. And this Ottoman public library ultimately over the course of the decades um, was changed into the Zaharia Library, which is today the National Al-Assad Library. And that's where we have roughly 50% of the 15th century collection is actually today still in the Assad Library. Mm. But it's also evident that that this is not the only trajectory of the books. And we find many of these books in libraries across the world, like in Princeton, in Dublin, in Paris, in Berlin, in, in Spain. So there must have been, in the course of the 19th century, a moment where books were taken out of the Omaria library um, and were sold on the book market in Damascus and then moved across the Middle East, probably also to other book markets, and then made the way to new shores um, in Europe and in the U.S.
0: Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm speaking with Conrad Hirschler about the various libraries of pre-Ottoman Syria. And so, so far we've spoken about the library buildings themselves, about the people who've given their books to create these libraries. But the thing we haven't spoken about is the users. What do we know about the users? Are there traces of them in the books that remain?
1: So... As I had said earlier, I mean, we have a fairly intensive use of these manuscripts by the users in order to pen down when they accessed the book, when they owned it, when they read it, when they transferred it, when they endowed it, and so yeah. on. So from these, we get a fairly good insight that these books, even though they were endowed at some point, never had a stable position in a library. Normally they were taken out of the endowment, you might call it they were stolen, but I don't like this term. I think there was much more complicated processes which led to books being moved out of endowments. And they were owned by new owners who then might re-endow them to the next matrasar and then again they move out of this endowment, owned by somebody in the city, move back to endowment. So these books have a very fascinating t- trajectory during their uh, the lifetime. and the problem is that many of those who are mentioned on the manuscripts, those whom we are able to identify, are the usual suspects. Because these are the names we know. They are very, fairly well mm-hmm. re- um, recorded in the narrative sources, in biographical dictionaries, in chronicles, and all the other books which we have. Um, but then we also have a fairly large amount of notes where we have only the first name or the name of the father, like Abd al-Rahman ibn Muhammad. Which is not further specified mm-hmm. and i think that there we have a group of people who work basically part of the literary life but who never made it really into the scholarly sphere right who never never perhaps never wanted to make it into the scholarly sphere who were perfectly happy to be traders of a specific kind of goods Who were perhaps perfectly happy to be bakers but who were literate um, and who were at least on the margins of, of the literary life. And the way of how we can basically track down these people who are on the, let's say, the margins of sc- scholarly life is via manuscript notes, which do not record the ownership of books, but the use of these books, again, in the framework of transmission of rights to teach. And from the 13th century onwards, starting in the 12th century, we see that we have a fairly large amount of Abd al-Rahman, the baker, of Muhammad the blacksmith, who are recorded in these sessions and who seemingly participated in these readings. In these
0: reading audition sessions that you yeah. mentioned. Okay. Yeah,
1: they're, they're, um, these reading audition sessions um, on a fairly basis uh, regular basis. So it's not that they pop in once and by chance are there and are recorded, but they are there for weeks and weeks and they return because often a reading of a book took years. It's not something which you necessarily finish within um, two weeks, especially the multi-volume books. Um, So a reading of a book could take up to 12 years. And these reading groups had regular meetings, like we meet on a Friday afternoon in the Umayyad mosque. And these reading sessions of a specific book were then quite regularly attended by people whom we would have never caught in the biographical dictionaries or in the chronicles because they always remained below the radar Mm -hmm. of scholarly life. They never made an impact in any way. They never authored anything. They never contributed to scholarly life. But they were part of the literary life which was taking place in Damascus. And so Ahmed the Baker, for example, whom we find quite often um, in the readings of a specific book, was certainly also somebody who had an interest in these books and who was a user of this library. And that's really the main point where you see that these books did not remain in closed scholarly institutions, sealed off, chained or in cupboards or whatever (laughs) image you have, you know, but that they were really part of the urban fabric and there were people taking them out. And we see that reflected to some extent in the chronicles. Mm. You know, I mean, they they are not mentioned. We, We never read the name of Ahmed the Baker, you know, he would have never been important enough. But we see that scholars from the 13th century onwards, at least some scholars, get slightly worried of what is going on, that increasingly people are turning up in their contexts, in their scholarly sessions, who are not really part of the scholarly life, of the scholarly group. And they become quite hostile and they say, oh, these ignorance, um, why we should not transmit knowledge to them because we don't know what they do with it and they could use it for false reasons and they right. could come up with weird ideas so we should keep it away from them. So in a metaphorical sense, we should chain the books, we should put them in a cupboard somewhere, close the doors and that's it. But that simply did not happen because these complaints just are repeated and repeated and they grow over time and they are certainly part of the movement of new sections of the population into literary society, and thus also into book circulation, book ownership, book consumption, which is a distinctive feature of the 12th, 13th, 14th century. And if you look, for example, at the field of poetry, that's not something I'm working on myself. That's very much the line of work by Thomas Bauer from the University of Münster. He has done an enormous amount of work on Poets who start to pop up in the 14th century in Cairo, who are definitely not part of any scholarly group, who are tradesmen, etc, mm-hmm. but who start to compose their own poetry and who at some point even start to have their own the collection of of poems. And I think that this is exactly where the trend, is leading to, which we see in the 12th, 13th century, that increasingly new groups of society start to be part of bookish culture. Mm-hmm. And then in the 14th century, they actually start to produce books on their own. That's not something which, is, which we see in the 12th, 13th century. Um, but in the 14th century, it's clearly evident. So the books we are talking about, they had a much wider circulation than just being part of a madrasa library. And that had been the traditional picture, basically, that all the books which we find today in the Assad Library and the Qatar al-Kutub and the Staatsbibliothek right. in Berlin and the Bibliothek Nationale de France or wherever they are, that they basically were part of Madrasa libraries or that were part of private collection of a very narrow um, group of scholars. And that's basically the picture which we are in the process of revising right now and seeing that these books had a much more further reach, wider into society, and that much wider section in society participated in the circulation of books.
0: Well, I think that's a very important point. So often we just forget about all these other marginal figures that are lost to history, that aren't mentioned in Chronicles, That, but we have to keep in mind that they're there and that are participating in this in the society. So thank you for a wonderful conversation. For any of our listeners who would like to find out more, please feel free to check out Conrad Hirschler's books he has quite a few now and you can also go to our website where you can find a short bibliography of relevant material thank you Conrad for being on the podcast
1: thank you very much Neil for having me